You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Hello everyone and welcome back to Find Your Voice. My name is Zoe Daniel and this is a podcast where we talk about policy and issues affecting my electorate of Goldstein and Australia more broadly. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present on unceded Aboriginal land. Greg Mullins, AO, is an internationally recognised expert in responding to major bushfires and natural disasters, having coordinated responses to many major natural disasters over more than two decades. Greg is the longest serving former fire commissioner in Australia and during his 39 year career has served on the Australasian Fire and Emergency Service Authorities Council, the New South Wales State Emergency Management Committee, the Australian Emergency Management Committee, as well as many other national and international positions. And it seemed appropriate, given the flooding that we've seen over the last few months in Australia, to talk to Greg today. Greg, thanks for joining us on Find Your Voice. Thanks, Zoe. Great to be here. And I'm on um, Gadigal land up in Sydney, so I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the beautiful land I'm on. Welcome. Now, you wrote in The Guardian that Australia is underprepared for our current reality and that we're devastatingly unprepared for what is to come. What do you think is ahead of us? Well, in, in a nutshell, um, we saw Black Summer, so they were the worst fires we've ever had. Uh, so there's no, there's no question about that, that. There was a lot of misinformation at the time, people saying, oh, the 1851 fires were worse for... Um, good luck with that, finding out what the 1851 fires were like because there were no fire services, no forestry or national park services, no Bureau of Meteorology and no one who could measure the weather properly. Um, so they, they made that up. People spreading misinformation made that up, but it was the hottest, driest year ever. Massive fires, massive losses. <clears throat> 450 people died just from the effects of smoke, so 33 from the fires, but... So hundreds killed, thousands of buildings destroyed. Um, that was climate change in action. So there's been attribution studies since then. Those fires could not have occurred without the warming, drying influence of climate change. They just, we couldn't have had weather like that. It was statistically not possible. And we got fires from hell. I was out there fighting them with tens of thousands of others. So... Now, the study that really chills me, one of many studies, but it put it in black and white, was in Australia, we can expect the black summer weather conditions to be average by 2040 and exceedingly cool by 2060. So what they're actually saying is that from 2030 onwards, we can expect more and more black summers. And by 2040, that's going to be a normal summer. So what is a bad summer going to look like? What are the extremes going to look like? We'll be trying to fight fires in temperatures of over 50 degrees. We had we had days that nudged 50 degrees and um, I was fighting fires that day, got severely dehydrated, 49 degrees at Penrith and I was up in the Blue Mountains fighting fires and had a couple of days in bed and then back out onto the fire front. And so it's hard to imagine. And now we've been hit by these massive floods You've had rainfall in the western suburbs of Sydney over three days that exceeded the average annual rainfall in Canberra or in London 
Um, so just in a few days, and you've had the flood levels in Lismore, not just beaten by a few centimetres, but by two metres, two metres higher than the highest floods ever before. So, And this was all predicted. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that the emergency services are resourced for the threat environment of the 1990s, not the 21st century. Um, no matter what happens with emissions, the scientists are saying there's so much CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, water vapour in the atmosphere, a certain amount of warming is locked in to 2050. But what happens after that relies entirely on what we do right now worldwide. We have to drastically cut emissions if we want those temperatures to stabilise. But um, I... You know, as you said, Zoe, 50 years I've been fighting fires. I was working on floods the day before yesterday, flood relief. Um, I've worked in the US, as you know. Um, I met you over there on a, on a fire that I went to observe in 2019. But um, this is a worldwide phenomenon, and it's beyond anything we can deal with. So we, we have to try and get ahead of the game. Now... When you and I met in 2019 in Northern California, you were bashing your head against a brick wall with the government of the day, sending letters, requesting meetings, trying to get attention to the fact that a terrible summer was coming and not having much success, um, to put it mildly. Where are we now, do you think, in terms of both the public psyche and the attitude of the incoming government to this issue, specifically in regard to emergency management? Well, I'll point to your new job <laughs> as an example of where the public psyche's gone and where I live, Sydney's Northern Beaches, um, Liberal member for 73 years, and now we have a Teal Independent, a strong local woman, a GP, who's just brilliant. But... Um, conservative values, but strong climate credentials and wants action, as you do. And so the electorate has spoken. So we've got a totally different makeup in Parliament. Um, the Liberal National Coalition, who couldn't agree amongst themselves, let alone with anyone else, they've been thrown out, their numbers massively reduced. We have a Labor government that can rule in its own right, or can govern in its own right, but... Um, with independents and a lot more Greens in the Senate. There's there's a new mood in Canberra in the public service, you know, people I know down there, um, because they were muzzled for 10 years or nine years. They weren't allowed... For example, Treasury was not allowed to do climate modelling and people there knew that that was just crazy and it was bad for Australia. But now the leash is off and I've... As you know, I met with Chris Bowen, Murray Watt, Jenny McAllister um, a day after the ministers were sworn in. And it's just a different feeling. So they're reaching out and they're asking and they're admitting what they don't know and they're admitting that this is a huge mountain to climb because we lost nine years, um, a decade of inaction by the coalition government on climate which is inexcusable, but it's done. Let's just get on with it. Let's forget about them, whatever their names were, um, and get on with it. So 
their ambitions aren't high enough. 43%, it was a political target. Um, they had the cover of the Business Council of Australia. They were frightened by what happened to Bill Shorten in the previous election and Scott Morrison saying, you know, Shorten would steal everyone's weekends and with EVs and all, all that rubbish that went on. You can, I can tell that the Labor government are still smarting from that and they're nervous. Um, but I think there's a huge mandate there when you add the Greens, the Teals, the Labor vote. Australians want action on climate because they're frightened by these escalating disasters. And I'll tell you what I am. Um, again, you know, 50 years of dealing with these things and it's just incredible how quickly and how severely they are escalating. It's beyond... You know, I spoke to you back there in um, in California in 2019. I knew something really bad was coming. Um, afterwards, I just licked my wounds like everyone else and thought, my God, I didn't even imagine it could be this bad. Yes, it was quite prescient of you. And I must say, observing those fires playing out over that summer, uh, I was also recalling our conversation thinking that you were pretty much dead on um, in terms of your prediction. So the fact that the government wasn't listening to you and the other emergency chiefs is pretty extraordinary. In regard to the target issue, this government says that it, it wants to end the climate wars, and certainly I'm now a, a participant in attempting to end that conflict. I wonder what enshrining a target of 43%, which you and I both agree is too low, in law does yeah what a what a vexed question it, it you know and if that's seen as well that's as far as we have to go that's a bad thing because the science is saying 75 percent by 2030 with net zero by 2035 if we have any hope whatsoever of capping temperature increases at 1.5 degrees internationally so 43 percent just doesn't cut it but it's a hell of a lot better than 26 to 28 that Scott Morrison and what's his name? Barnaby Joyce um, it had had as a target. So we, we need to grab that 43% and work on it. And where can we push that? You know, what can we do quickly? So transmission infrastructure for a new, new renewables, that's got to be done very quickly. Um, government, government vehicle fleets going electric and that'll drive a second-hand market and, you know, get manufacturers coming here. That mandating solar panels on all new builds um, with batteries, there's so much that can be done. Um, so why stop at 43? So I'm worried about, you know, already the talk about um, the Greens saying, that that legislation's not good, that being seen as a throwback to 2009, I think it was, so, um, when the Greens withheld um, their votes from the carbon pricing, etc. But I think they're valid concerns. If that's going to be enshrined as that's as hard as we have to go, I'd be really worried because we have to go hard and fast. And I, I go back to what I said about 2040, the hell on earth in terms of bushfires that we're going to face in that sort of weather that's definitely coming, no matter what we do. Um, it, it's just not enough. Mm. So to be clear, I'm 
arguing that if the government is going to enshrine 43% in legislation, that that should be a floor, not a ceiling. So the language should be at least 43% to give us some room to be more ambitious. Now let's go to the emergency management piece, which of course is your area of expertise. Talk us through the six point plan that emergency leaders for climate action had proposed to the new government. How, how do you see that working? What are the priorities there? Look, it's <laughs> it's not a plan that's going to take us forward for decades. It's an immediate action plan, things that the government needs to take notice of immediately um, from the viewpoint of just under 40. Well, how many now? We've got 39 former chiefs, deputy chiefs of every fire service in Australia, um, SES chiefs, National Parks and Forestry Fire Managers and former Directors General of Emergency Management Australia. So it's, you know, over a thousand years of experience in, in emergency management. Um, so the first thing is, it's, a, it's like when a pot boils over on the stove, um, you can keep putting lids on and mopping up the water. You actually have to dial down the heat to stop the problem. So strong, immediate cuts and I've spoken to the Energy Minister, Climate Change Minister, about that 43%. They're very much aware that we, emergency leaders for climate action, believe that 43% um, is insufficient and they need to... The only good thing that Scott Morrison did in that space, I think, is a slogan, meet it or beat it. We can use that. Nothing else they did was worth um, using. But meet, meet and beat that target. Um, because we have to dial down the heat and end the climate wars. The second thing, the, the climate wars, um, what's very refreshing to me, I'm still pinching myself, is there's not a government there we have to argue the case that climate change is actually happening and that it's affecting natural disaster risks or unnatural disasters because they're nothing like they used to be. So... Um, that's great. That's the first step in ending the climate wars. And if we hear anything from the coalition, you know, some of the things already that they've said, um, I think we're just, they're just background noise now. Just ignore them and get on with the job, but engage with the teal independents, engage with the greens, engage with the community. Um, like Bob Hawke did with the Accords years ago and solved years of industrial strife and and business, got business on board. We need to pull people together and stop this argument. Business wants certainty. Um, they, they want to know where to invest their money and how. Uh, they don't want to, they're nervous about being first adopters and first movers because their investment might not, you know, and others worried about being left behind. So there needs to be certainty in every sector. Um, and we're certainly feeling the effects of not having a national energy policy. Malcolm Turnbull tried that one and couldn't get it through his own mob. Um, so now the next thing is communities must be at the centre of all resilience efforts. You can't just impose things dreamt up in Sydney or Melbourne or Canberra on the far south coast of New South Wales or Gippsland or Lismore. Um, people need to be involved and come up with their own solutions um, so that that's a, and in their recovery as well, that's key. The other thing is at present we're spending about 97% of disaster money on 
response and recovery after the things happened. And that's not going to cut it into the future. So we've got to move into that adaptation space, shift the dial. And it's just like healthcare spending. Um, you know, it's well known, for example, that if you have programs, proactive programs on obesity, you drive down rates of diabetes. So you have less people in hospital beds. So for each dollar you spend, I don't know the multiplication factor, but um, some studies have shown a return of for every dollar spent in disaster planning and preparation, uh, you get five to seven dollars back in reduced recovery costs later on. So, so that's got to shift. The next thing is our emergency services, as I said, are resourced for the 1990s. Um, we saw we had to bring in the Australian Defence Forces, and we're continuing. You know, the day before yesterday at Wiseman's Ferial, there was um, the ADF resources there with Rural Fire Service, Fire and Rescue, SES. Um, we're getting out of scale events that just need everybody, but the ADF has a different job to do. They look after our external borders, not inside. And um, in the current international uncertainty, geopolitical environment, you don't want to tie up your defence resources doing ad hoc uh, emergency work that they're not trained or equipped for. And you don't want to duplicate what's in the emergency services. You want your communities to do that work. Um, so you want to recruit more volunteers, far more career firefighters who um, can be the backbone of when campaign incidents, when things start to fall over and volunteers have to go back to work. Um, you, you need an army of people who are paid who can stay online. Um, same with national parks and forestry firefighters. So a lot more resourcing. And what we've said is there's billions being paid in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Um, divert that to the states and territories for bolstering their emergency services. There's a lot of money there and it would make a big difference. So um, transition that money over. Um, a, a national risk assessment to inform a national risk plan. Now, already the government's announced that um, former head of ASIO, I think it is, is doing a national security risk assessment on climate. That's great. I've spoken to the government on behalf of emergency leaders. We've pushed this quite a bit, saying there must be another string to this. There must be a natural disaster risk assessment um, so that we know how to drive adaptation efforts. And off the back of that, um, don't be fooled that putting money into adaptation will actually work unless you're pushing that accelerator pedal on mitigation. In other words, back to the first one, emissions reduction. They go hand in hand because if you miss the bus, if it takes off too quickly, in other words, natural disaster risks due to you know, increased droughts, heat waves, fires, floods, storms, cyclones, um, less cyclones but more intense, um, sea level rise, coastal inundation. If you miss the bus, you miss the bus. So you've got to deal with what's causing that. Again, that pot on the stove, turn down the heat. So adaptation efforts go hand in hand. So that's it in a nutshell. Do you think that we're at the point yet where we can talk about extreme weather events together with climate. <laughs> it seems that the two things have been deliberately disconnected from each other.
Labour to the extent that the response politically has been, now's not the time to talk about that because we're trying to support affected communities. But of course, by and large, those affected communities that are amid the disaster are talking to each other about the fact that this is climate change related. Look, if you, if you go to the south coast of New South Wales, to Gippsland, to Wiseman's Ferry, to Windsor, to Lismore, uh, Grantham, you know, the, all these places that have been devastated by out-of-scale disasters, good luck finding someone who says, no, climate change is crap. Um, like, <laughs> anyway, I won't go there, but like some politicians have said in the past, um, they know because they talk to the old-timers who say we've, we've never had anything like this. There's never been anything like this before, and and the numbers don't lie. So it's it's and the Insurance Council of Australia they they have the data to say that the average wind speeds in storms are going up. Um, most of it, well, a lot of our rain now comes in extreme downpours over short time periods that causes flash flooding. Where I live, Sydney's northern beaches, um, Manly Dam overflowed one day and nearly burst its banks and we're evacuating people all the way to the coast at Manly. You know, it's only a few cases. It was a minor thing, but I've lived here all my life and that's never, never happened before, in it, even in extreme events, but it was just this, these incredible volumes of water. And what's the science? It's very simple. Each one degree of warming, the atmosphere holds 7% more moisture and... Because of warmer oceans, there's more evaporation. All of that combines to extreme downpours, but interspersed by extreme dryness and then bushfires and heat waves and droughts. So it's wild swings. Um, people see this. They know. And when politicians try to say, no, no, there's no climate change here. These fires are normal. These floods are normal. Um, there's a lot of shaking of heads amongst victims in particular and more and more emergency responders So, and the general community. And again, I think the election spoke. You know, and if they don't take notice of that, um, the coalition will enjoy being in the freezer for I don't know how long. But, I, I uh, want to end this um, just on a, a slight note of optimism because it is a quite a concerning conversation um, and I think you know as a journalist obviously I've been on a different side of this but I've seen so many natural so-called natural disasters or climate related disasters over my career that this has been a real driving force for me to step into this role. I do feel optimistic and hopeful um, from the position that I'm now sitting in to to make change to make a difference do you feel that optimism and hope, Greg? Oh, absolutely. And that, and the thing is, you can never give up hope. If you you, you give up hope, and it's all over. Um, so we can't listen to the naysayers. You know, this is too hard, and what will it do to our economy? Well, let's be smart. We're a smart country. Um, we're a can-do country. Let's get on with it. Let's use the moral authority we do have internationally to push our friends like the US to do more on climate, um, to, you know, hope, hopefully, well, India, China, the big emitters really show that this can be done and that we can 
bolster our economies and do better through going to renewables, etc. Um, and the people are talking. And I, I just, where I live, I'm just watching all the solar panels going on the roofs. People are, and the electric vehicles people are buying, uh, people want to do something. They, and that that's an incredible force. And, um, you know, I look back through history and I, I grew up in the 60s and thinking we were going to be annihilated in a nuclear war and um, then uh, CFCs, uh, the ozone layer was going to be depleted and we were all going to get melanoma and the world moved on that. We can do this. We have to do this and we have to look after the natural environment and stop thinking that we can live in a cocoon and that's separate. It's all a web. It's all a web of life. And if we muck up one part of it, um, the whole lot falls over. So we're not going to let that happen. And that's why I've been very loud because uh, I've got grandkids and I'm going to try and leave them a really good planet to live on. Greg, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks again for joining us on Find Your Voice. Great to talk to you, Zoe. Thank you for what you do. You can learn more about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, 677 Nepean Highway, Brighton East, Victoria. Victoria.